I'll invite you to open your Bibles tonight to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, page 1160 of your pew Bibles. And um, of course, every sermon must be rooted in the Word of God, built on the perfect standard of truth and living, um, which is the Bible, um, but we'll also be hearing of, from the Heidelberg Catechism. And today, Lord's Day 1, is, just as I said earlier, the, the first in this new series, um, a 52-part series <laughs> on the Heidelberg Catechism. There are 52 Lord's Days, one for each week of the year. And um, I've already preached through the Catechism once here at Ammon Valley, I've preached through the Belgian Confession as well, and I've been teaching the Catechism now for, I think, three or four years to the high school students of our church and thought it would be good for us to pick back up this reformational value of catechism teaching during especially evening services. And um, when I teach the Heidelberg Catechism to high school students of our church, we, we begin every, every time we start it um, with the question of why. Why was this catechism written? Why did Zacharias and Ursinus and Caspar Livianus and some of the other pastors and theologians in Heidelberg in the 1500s set about to write a catechism. Uh, well, first of all, it might be helpful for you to know this was not a new idea in the Reformation era. There were already other catechisms. You might be aware that our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ read a catechism and are, um, are taught their catechism. Occasionally, I'll even listen to a podcast that teaches the Roman Catholic Catechism, if I'm curious about what Roman Catholics believe about various issues. Uh, Father Schmidt, I think, is the name of um, a guy with a popular podcast um, in um, Duluth, Minnesota, who teaches the Roman Catholic Catechism. And so from the Reformation era came other catechisms, the Lutheran Catechism, written by Martin Luther, the Genevan Catechism, the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, there are various other catechisms out there, and our denomination holds to the Heidelberg Catechism, which I would say, I would contend, is the most beloved confession, um, certainly among continental Reformed people, um, and the most often incorporated confession. Um, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters hold to the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Standards, and I think that uh, although that is a, a valuable document and, and has great teaching of the Reformed faith, I would say from my experience and what I've observed, it's not as, as put into use in the teaching, say, of the youth of Presbyterian churches like you find in our church, or even in references during sermons like what you would find in a Christian Reformed church and the Heidelberg Catechism. And so, uh, getting back to the, the original question, uh, we need to know why the Catechism was written. When we know the why, you will likely know the what. And here's what I mean by that. When you know why something was made, you know what it is meant to do. You'll know what you find there in terms of a catechism. When you know why the catechism was created, you would have a good idea of some of the doctrines and even some of the, um, the flow of the catechism as well. When you know why the Belgian Confession was written, um, to argue for the Reformed faith to Roman Catholic authorities who were in Spain. 
then you would know a lot of what you'd find in the Belgic Confession. Same for the Canons of Dort, same for the Letter of Ephesians, same for really any document. When you know why it was written, you know what you find in it. And I'm also convinced that when we learn why the Catechism was written, then we'll also grow in our value of it today as well. Um, and so I want to just give you, set the scene a little bit in Heidelberg in the mid-1500s. What was happening? Um, here's a map of Europe in the year 1540. You can see that on the screen, and hopefully even those who are joining us on the live stream can see what is really a jumbled mess in what is now Germany, isn't it? I mean, this is, um, kind of politically speaking, a bit of a catastrophe in order to figure out exactly where each of those little duchies is, and none of you are probably close enough to see that there is a reformed German confederation in sort of the orange area there, but even there, there are borders and, and lines drawn between all of these little, little kingdoms, and... Um, and these kingdoms were at times at war with each other. That would happen especially in the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century and, you know, about a hundred years later. And um, not only are the political borders of that map a mess, but at the very same time, there were theological borders being drawn up. There was great theological upheaval in every nation on that map, even the ones that look like they're in pretty good shape politically, like you say France, England, um, the Habs Habsburg Empire in Spain there. You might look at that map and say, well, it looks like uh, you know, sort of a, a whole nation similar to what we see today. But what this political map can't show you is the great theological turmoil in, say, France, England, um, Bohemia, even the Scandinavian countries as well. And so the purpose of all this upheaval is the Reformation, where Martin Luther um, taught against the teaching of the Pope that um, one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when he nailed his 95 theses, which were detailing the false teaching of the Pope of his day, um, he set off this, this, he was the spark that, that lit this firestorm of theological upheaval, and, and this is what really comes a little bit downstream from that. And so each of those little dots has a prince or a duke or somebody ruling over it that is going to be deciding, are we going to be Roman Catholic or a Protestant um, duchy or kingdom or um, in the case of the Heidelberg Catechism, the Palatinate was the region where Heidelberg even still is today. And so each of these, this sort of the, the mess of the political map I think represents in some ways the theological confusion that was happening in Europe of that day as well. People asking the biggest questions of the Christian faith. What is the gospel? What did Christ come to accomplish? What do we believe about the Bible? Where is the highest authority for the church today? Is it in Rome with the Pope? Or is, it, is the highest authority the Word of God, which is over the church? So, those same questions are being asked today, aren't they? Those very same questions are being asked in Ripon, in California, in the United States, all throughout the world. If we were to create a theological map of the nation in which we live, I think it would look a lot like that jumbled political map 
that we see of Europe in 1540. And that's why I show this to our students, because um, anybody who engages with social media, who goes on YouTube and watches um, a pastor from some other place or some influencer, well, you're going to hear a variety of theological ideas. What is Christianity? What is the gospel? What does the Christian life look like? What does the Word of God teach about any number of different issues? I think that today we live in a a very similar climate where there is great confusion, I would even say competition, for establishing truth. What is the gospel? What is the church? What do we believe is happening during a baptism? What do we believe is happening during communion? What is the state of humanity without Christ? How should a Christian live? And so the catechism was written in the year 1563, mostly by a man named Zacharias or Sinus, to train young people to live in that jumbled mess. (laughs) To train young people to grow up knowing what is the gospel, what is our only hope in life and in death, what is the message of Christianity. The catechism was written, of course, in Heidelberg, Germany. That's why it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And even as I preach tonight, please know the Bible is absolutely superior to the catechism in answering these questions. The Bible is superior to the catechism in authority and in perfection. But we can also receive the catechism as a helpful synthesis of passages of Scripture that are of first importance for us to believe. And so, We receive the catechism as as a gift from God for us, not as a perfect gift, but as a document that helps to, to answer those biggest questions about the Christian faith, which we find the answers to in Scripture. And we'll find basically, really almost every line of the catechism is a quote from the Bible. So this isn't a by the design of humanity. This is not following the customs that are man made in this world, but but a synthesis, albeit not a perfect, a perfect one, a, a synthesis of biblical teaching on these important matters. So each week, to symbolize the Bible's authority, we'll read the scripture first, symbolizing that, that the Bible has supreme authority, and then we will follow each week reading from the catechism that corresponds to a, bibl- a biblical teaching. And um, tonight, the scripture passage is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And just to prepare you to hear the word of God so that you would know what's happening here, um, the Apostle Paul is writing here to people who are wondering, how can a Gentile person be welcomed into the family of God? How can a Gentile become a Christian, a child of God? How could they belong to the Lord? We really have that question as well. We're all Gentiles here. And so how does somebody become born again, a Christian, regenerate? We find the answer. Uh, Having already prayed, we can read, starting at verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning by Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is a reference between the dividing wall between Gentile and Jew. But Paul's going to say it's so much fuller of a reconciliation that he accomplishes by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, those who were Jewish. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We see the words also of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, questions 1 and 2 on the screen behind me. I'll read the question and let's respond out loud reading the answer together. Brothers and sisters, what is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, brothers and sisters, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians and the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism were very much seeking to address similar questions that a Christian will have. While the questions have a theological nature to them, the book of Ephesians and the Catechism are aimed at far more than answering just theological questions. They're aimed at more than just our minds. They are aimed also at the heart. Where is your comfort? Where is your ultimate comfort? In what do you really put your hope? When it's all been said and done, what truth will you hold on to as the truth that determines the course of your life? For the Ephesian Christians, there was concern 
about how a person can be fully accepted into the family of God. And this isn't just a question about belonging, it's a question about salvation. It's not just a question of feeling welcomed into a community like the Ephesian church, it's a question ultimately of, is a person fully and absolutely saved by the work of Christ? Or do we need to do some extra things in order to feel welcomed into a community? The Apostle Paul, in his wisdom, does not paint a rosy picture of the situation before these people believed in the gospel. He's very frank about how lost, how destitute, how spiritually bankrupt these people were before they were grafted into the church through Christ. Verse 12 of what I just read of Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And his final point bears repeating. Without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, we are without God. You, all of us, both Jew and Gentile alike, are naturally separated from God, alienated from God because of our sinful nature. And this isn't just an isolated verse where Paul is getting really serious about the consequences of sin and of our distance, spiritually speaking, from God. He wrote already in Ephesians chapter 2, a verse we didn't read, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there is the issue, there's the problem to be solved, that by nature we are separated, alienated, having no hope without God in the world. By nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, there is no person, save Jesus Christ himself, who is born in a kind of state of favor, spiritually speaking, in God's sight. There's no race of people, there's no individual person or family that has kind of achieved or gained a special standing in the kingdom of God that would make God more disposed to welcome them into his covenant family than maybe some other people or nation. No. The Apostle Paul is so crystal clear about this. All of mankind are by nature children of wrath, except one, Christ himself. So I selected this text of Ephesians chapter 2 because that theme of separation from God is prevalent throughout the Heidelberg Catechism. For the authors of the Catechism, the problem could be described maybe a little bit differently, but in its essence, it is the same issue. So, question one answered, what is your only comfort? What is the only solution? What is your only hope? The modern reader might read about comfort and think that a person's foundational problem is our bad feelings about ourselves. That word comfort has more of a psychological interpretation in our culture than what would have been intended by the Heidelberg Catechism's authors and how it's basically going to be interpreted as a default interpretation in our culture today. Comfort has a lot to do with psychology today. And so if that's someone's understanding, a kind of a, a shallow view of comfort, they could think that, that the catechism is going to tell us how to feel good about ourselves. 
What is your only comfort? What is the only thing that would make you feel really good? Um, the remedy then there, if that's the, the understanding of the problem, would be that, well, we need for God to, to give us a hug, for God to comfort us when we're feeling down, when we're feeling excluded. Now, to be sure, God does comfort us. God carries us. Um, I just read to Gwen Hollander in the hospital that, that God carries us like a shepherd close to his heart. So there will be um, an emotional blessing at times, certainly, for the Christian who is comforted and cared for by God. But our feelings are not ultimately the problem. Question and answer two of the catechism taught that what we need to know is how great our sin and misery are. That's what we need comfort from. That's what we need a solution to. The greatness of our sin and our misery. The German word that is translated into English as misery has to do with exile. How great your, the word is eland, how, how great your exile from God is, how distant you are from God. That's what you need to know if you're going to live and die in the joy of this comfort. First, you've got to know the problem. Your distance from God, your exile from Him. We'll think about this a lot in the series in Genesis where God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden at the end of the story. And so the catechism teaches that we need to know that we haven't just committed a few isolated slip-ups, morally speaking. We haven't just done a couple sins against God, occasional mistakes that God calls sins. That's kind of the, the modern um, American way of thinking about sin. I, I, I did a naughty thing. <laughs> I, I said a bad word. I did this isolated incident that it's kind of out of character for me. I know I'm really a good person, though. That is, that is not the teaching of the catechism. We need to know that we are in exile, in misery, far away from God, spiritually speaking, by our nature. And so this very much echoes Ephesians 2, doesn't it? The passages that you see right on the screen in front of us, that that we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. That is the human problem. A spiritual problem. Spiritual bankruptcy. Absolute exile from the presence of God by nature, an object of wrath. So what is the great answer to that problem? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, who were in misery, who were exiled, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We can read further about all the work of Christ in the rest of the chapter as well. And, And keep in your mind this image of having been exiled and now being brought home in Christ. He, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access. Don't you love that word? You have access to God. Have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer exiled, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, 
you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this is saying, not only are you brought into the household of God, but you're being built up into a temple that is the habitation of God, the place where God dwells. That with the saints and members of the household of God, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So just before we jump back into the teaching of the catechism and and find that teaching there as well, let's consider just for a moment the parable of the prodigal son. What happens in that parable? It's another story about sin, exile, forgiveness, and belonging. That's the the storyline of the parable of the prodigal son. The son sins against the father, demanding his inheritance, goes and squanders it all the way down to the lowest places, ruining his own life in his sin. He, He comes to his senses. He returns to the father just hoping for forgiveness and maybe he could become a slave in the father's household. But but the great culmination of the story is that he, had, he doesn't just receive forgiveness, he is welcomed back home. He belongs there again. The son who was lost, who was in exile, is found. The son who was dead is alive again. So the father doesn't just forgive the son for his offensive request and squandering his money. The father doesn't just forgive the son, as the great minister Tim Keller would say, That forgiveness has to do with with saying your debt has been paid and you may go. The father does more than forgive. He justifies the son and says, now you belong here again. The father tells the son, you're a part of this family. By grace, welcomed back into the father's family. No longer in exile, Restored to the Father, to the place he's meant to live. The Catechism tells us that the Christian has comfort because you belong to God through Christ. That you belong body and soul in life and in death to a faithful Savior who is Jesus Christ. How is it that you come to belong to him? The Catechism continues, he has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood. So he has purchased you, as Jesus says, the mission of his life, that he would come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that would even include you and me. Bought us with his own precious blood, delivering us from the tyranny of the devil. In the book of John, we learn, and now nothing can remove you from his hand. All those who would come to Christ, of all them who come to God through him, he will lose none. All things are working together for your salvation and for the salvation of all the saints. All of this means, just to summarize, you belong with God through Christ. Like the prodigal son comes back to the father, you now belong in the household of God by grace. And it's of not, not of our works so that none of us can boast, but it's by grace through faith in Christ, that you belong with God. So what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort, of that restoration? Three things, and this is 
essentially the table of contents of the catechism. Begins with misery, continues to grace, and most of the catechism is how now shall the Christian live having been born again in Christ? So firstly, you must know that you are a sinner who is by nature exiled from God, living in misery. That your sins are not just minor errors. During my sabbatical, we were in an evangelical church in Germany, and the pastor there was preaching through the book of Hosea. And um, one of the purposes of the book of Hosea, and I would even say one of the purposes of all of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament is to wake people up to the seriousness of sin. Of course, it's to give the promise of God's gracious covenant with those who would seek him, who love him, but especially in a book like Hosea, you have an example in that story of how serious sin is and how offensive it is to God. So often in our culture, the temptation is to lower the seriousness of sin to make people feel a little bit better about themselves and then kind of offer Christ as the opportunity to get away from the consequences of those few slip-ups that you've made, morally speaking. The minor prophets do not allow us to do that. Um, and In fact, in many of them, there is, is actually almost rated our language, actually, about how bad sin is in God's sight, how, how offensive it is to God that we would rebel against him, the, the make, our maker, the one who, who has not just made the world but redeemed us in Christ and, and sent his own son into the world that was rejected by people in the world. This is a pervasive problem. That is the message of certainly the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul continued this. He wrote that every person except Christ has been dead in transgressions and sins. Not just a little bit off kilter or off balance, morally speaking. Dead. Dead in transgressions and sins. The first step towards the comfort of the gospel is recognizing just how much we all need a Savior. The second thing, you must know how we are set free from all our sins and misery. We sang this morning, in Christ alone, my hope is found. That's it. In Christ alone. Not in myself, not in my work, not in my obedience, not in belonging to just the right church, doing things that would you know, show that I'm a hard worker and I've built a family and, and so forth. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is our only comfort in life and death. He said of himself, I am the way. He's the way from exile back to the Father. He said, I'm the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Another hymn reminds us, Christ has regarded our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our souls. Christ has regarded our exile, our misery, and has shed his own blood for our souls, returning us to the family of God. Thirdly, you must know something further. How should I thank God for delivering me? How can we live as a Christian? So much of the catechism is devoted to answering that question. How does a Christian pray? How does a Christian obey God? 
Brothers and sisters, the Christian loves the Word of God. The true Christian will love God's will, will love to pray, will love when God gives a command. That is refreshing to the soul, as Psalm 119 reminds us over and over again, that that the commands of the Lord are a delight to the one who is born again. So we'll, we, we've already sung, you know, uh, trust and obey. How do we trust and obey? Well, there's a part of that song that says, where he sends, I will go. What he says, I will do. Good works, brothers and sisters, are not on the road to salvation. They are on the road from salvation, though. Our good works don't earn us a standing with God, but once we've been born again, you will walk on the path of Christ. Think of the commands of the Bible just for a moment as a description of a road. If the road that you're on looks nothing like the road that the Bible describes as the way of life, then you should conclude you are on the wrong road. And that's an area of so much confusion in our culture, even at times, sadly, in the Christian Reformed Church today. That many who are on a a road of life that ultimately really doesn't look a whole lot like the path of Christ or the path that God's Word describes that the Christian life would look like. And so the conclusion then is those are two different roads. (laughs) That that one who is on a a road of life that, that is in line with our culture in various ways that are dangerous and who doesn't repent and want to turn back to the road, the way of Christ, that person is showing that the Spirit is not at work in their heart. Must repent. This is really the whole theme of the Pilgrim's Progress. So often, they go down the wrong road and and by God's grace, through the work of the evangelist and through the word, they're returned to the road, thankfully. And that's what we hope for each of us, that when we get off track on the road, we would hear the gospel and come back. Some people will profess that they belong to Jesus, but the path that they're walking looks nothing like the way of life described in the scriptures. They want the belonging without the obedience. A final application that I know I've made before, but but I think is the most important thing that I could ever say as a pastor. When you are preparing to die, you will be looking for comfort. When you are preparing for those big moments in life, especially at the end of our lives, if the Lord would bless us with an opportunity even to prepare for that moment, you will be wondering, what is my comfort? What is my hope? This will happen at many points throughout your life, and it will be the final battle, spiritually speaking, that we all face. Where will you look for comfort? Will you trust in yourself? Will you trust in the doctor? Will you trust in your family, in your possessions, in your reputation, in your accomplishments to deliver you in that moment, to give you some peace, something to hold on to? What is your only comfort? I belong to Jesus. That's it. My body belongs to him. My soul belongs to him. In life I belong to him. In death I'll belong to him. 
and he's a faithful savior. That's our hope. That's the Christian message. It's the Christian gospel that through his death and resurrection, he has bought us. We belong now with God through him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord.